So we come now to the preaching of God's Word in Luke 22 and verses 7 through 18. Luke 22, 7 through 18. Judas has covenanted with the chief priests and scribes to betray the Lord Jesus. And now we read verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. He shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber that where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And so on through the instituting of the Lord's Supper. Well, thus we come now to this Christ's observing of the Passover. Passover, of course, was one of the high and holy days of the Jewish calendar. It was marked out by many uh, preparing observations, as well as many particular things to be done on that day and throughout the day. And you'll notice that Christ is observing that. So He commends and sets forth His disciples, particularly Peter and John, verse 8, and says, go and prepare. What? The Passover. And so he, as an observant Jew, was going to observe this ritual and ceremony. And there are historical things that are related then from verse 9 onward, when it is that Christ says, you'll find a man, he'll bring you, go in, say, where's the guest chamber that I'll eat? And so on. And he'll show you this. Verse 13, they went, they found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, there's much here that might allure us with many questions. We wonder, for instance, was this Christ's divine foreknowledge? He saw this. Was it a prearranged thing where He had pointed this man? Or was it, as was customary in Jerusalem around the Passover, that those who lived in Jerusalem would be open to hosting all manner of guests who would attend uh, the Passover in Jerusalem? We frankly don't know. But what we do know is that Christ is going forth to observe it. And it says in verse 13 that they made ready the Passover. And then we have a common expression so frequent in the the Gospel. It says, when the hour was come. This expression means the appointed time. And it reminds us of things that Christ has said. The hour, my hour, has come. 
And so there's an appointed time to observe the Passover. And Luke is weaving this together as others do, reminding and helping us to see that this is foreshadowing the more uh, significant hour appointed for the coming of Christ's suffering. And you'll notice that Christ brings this up in verse 15 when He says, "...with desire..." I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Notice those three words that follow. Before I suffer. Passover was, as to us is, like the Lord's Supper. A special and an anticipated day. It could be easily and was doubtlessly caught up in the mere outward attraction of a ceremony. And yet, for the observant and believing Jew, it was a significant reminder not only of the historical redemption of the nation from Egypt, but of the personal redemption by the blood of a substitute. And so, here, the Jews observe it. But Christ is desiring this with an even greater desire. Notice the language in verse 15. With desire, I have desired. Though written in Greek, obviously, as the New Testament is, it's expressing a Hebraic uh, form of speech. It's as in Proverbs 4.23, when it says, keep thy heart with all keeping. Our English translates that, keep thy heart with all diligence. And it's trying to express the notion. What Christ is saying, with the greatest desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Not just the Passover, you'll notice, but this Passover. Why? Well, children, you'll notice that this is all, of course, approaching near unto Christ's suffering. And so why is it that Christ is so focused upon this Passover? Why is it that Christ is saying it's not just a spiritual desire that we have with other observances, but with a peculiar type of vehement desire, unlike other desires, I've desired this Passover with you? Well, we can look at the context and see most clearly because this is the nearest sign to the reality of what the Passover was. This is, for instance the sign butting up against the thing it's pointing to. Some of you young people have gone on you know, different kinds of hunts and there are signs and so on. You know, Go this way, go that way. And there are arrows pointing this way and hints and signs that direct you along uh, some sort of track. Or perhaps you've gone in a cornfield maze and you wonder, do I turn right or left? And someone says, follow me this way and that way. And then you get to the end And there's an arrow saying, here it is. That's what's going on here at this Passover. All of the years since Exodus 12, 13, 14, 15, where Passover is nearing, pointing to the grand provision of the Lamb which God would provide. And now finally, at this moment, the sign comes straight to the thing to which every Passover has been pointing. And what is it? Well, Christ says it. Before I suffer. And so all of this is with earnest expression of Christ's desire to suffer for His people. I want you 
to observe this with me. I want to observe it with you because for this reason have I come. The Passover, which by the way I instituted, has ever been pointing and anticipating this day when I should suffer. Now there's tremendous significance that every Jew would get instantaneously when these things start to get connected. Well, to take time to at least reestablish that in our own understanding. But look with me as we look at this great Passover, not merely the feast, but rather the Passover in reality, Jesus Christ. Three things for us this morning. Firstly, the Passover's meaning. Secondly, the Passover's symbolism. And thirdly, the Passover's end. There's a way in which we would rightly say, this is the last Passover. But what was it pointing to? So it's meaning, it's symbolism, and it's end. Well, in order to understand what Christ is expressing and to understand His desire so earnestly expressed here, we have to go back to understand what the Passover is. Now, most of us will have some familiarity with it. So we remember that in Egypt, as bondmen, God's people were there enslaved to Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his appointed men were with great wickedness, mistreating and abusing, enslaving God's people. And God had performed a number of plagues to deliver His people from Pharaoh and Egypt. But every one of them, as it were, failed. It's not that God failed, but rather that Pharaoh hardened himself and did not release the people. God knew this all along. He says, I'm going to do this. He's going to be hardened. He's going to refuse and resist. But then He comes, if you turn, for instance, to Exodus chapter 12, to the very pinnacle of judgment. And in doing so, He says, now Pharaoh will let you go. What is that judgment? Well, this is helpful for us to remember. The Passover's meaning is inseparable from God's wrath and curse. There's no understanding of the Passover unless you understand God's wrath and curse. We could say, just by way of getting ahead of ourselves, there's no understanding of salvation in the cross unless you understand God's wrath and curse. Notice, for instance, Exodus 12. And there, at verse 12, God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Notice again in verse 23 of Exodus 12, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And you have it again in verses 29 and 30, the historical act of God in this way. It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Notice the response. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Earlier, 
Pharaoh's wise men, so-called, had said to Pharaoh, don't you see all Egypt's destroyed? Don't you realize this is God's hand against you? And Pharaoh looks at it all and he says, I don't care. I'm committed to having my way. I'm not going to submit to some God that I don't want to worship. I'll have it my way. And all of his wise counselors saying, it's all lost. Egypt is ruined. And yet what it seems is, until God put His finger upon the very essence of Pharaoh's personal hope, Pharaoh would not in the least bow. And we can also see, as you know, that when he removed his finger, as it were, Pharaoh was instantly brought back to seek the destruction of Israel. But what we notice is this. The Passover is in the midst of the execution of just judgment against sinners. Now, what's interesting is Israel was under that judgment as well. You say, wait a second, not one of the Israelites died. Not one of the firstborn of the Israelites were taken. And so it's not true. You can't say that, that Israel was under God's judgment. And yet we can. Why so? Because not only is the Passover a testimony of judgment, the death of each firstborn, it is the testimony of a gracious provision to His people. Notice again Exodus 12 and verse 7. This lamb of the Passover is taken, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat. So there's blood of the lamb applied to the entryway of each house. And you'll notice at verse 13, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And then again, in verse 23, we have it where the hyssop is taken. Verse 22, it's dipped in the blood. It's the lintel is struck, the two side posts, and so on. No one shall go out of the door of his house, remembering perhaps as it were the ark of the uh, saving of Noah. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when He seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Here's the point. If the blood of the substitute was not applied, it would not have been merely Egypt who had lost their firstborn. It would have been Israel. Why is that? Here's something for you and I to remember. Each one of us is worthy of God's wrath and curse. Our catechism says it so simply, what does every sin deserve? Every sin, every transgression of the law, however heinous, however less heinous it may be, every sin deserves what? God's wrath and curse both in this life and in the life which is to come. Every one. Is that how you think of your sin? Do you think of your sin that way? I've spoken to men and women, both. It's not a gender thing. I've spoken to various people of different financial standings. It's not about finances. Educational levels is not about that. Everyone by nature thinks this. Their sins deserve God's judgment. 
my sins aren't that bad. I don't really deserve hell. I mean, yeah, I've messed up. I've sinned. I've not fulfilled all of God's law. Well, this is reminding us of the testimony of Scripture so frequently asserted. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And so, for a moment, entertain this. If you lived in the days of the first Passover, and in God's covenant you existed, and yet you said, blood on my doorposts? I don't need someone else's blood. What would have happened in your house is the firstborn would have died. You would have been judged. It's not about being in God's covenant outwardly. It's about the blood applied to you that delivers you from the judgment you deserve. You need, as the Jews needed in this outward display, you need the blood of a substitute. And that's what's going on here. The Lamb. And is there anything that so evokes thoughts of something that's cute and gentle as a Lamb? Innocent, we use the word, don't we? A lamb is playful and it's attractive to us. Children love these creatures. And yet it's a lamb that is taken, killed, and its blood put upon the doorposts and the lintel. Why is that? Well, you'll remember, of course, as we'll see, that this is directing us to see there is a substitute that is innocent that is needed for us. And this is the meaning of the Passover. We deserve judgment for our sins. But God has provided a substitute. But you'll also notice there's more in the meaning of the Passover. Because in the Passover's meaning, there's not just judgment, the wrath of God against us for our sins, there's not only the gracious provision of a substitute by which our sins are pardoned, there is the message and meaning of redemption. What does redemption mean? Well, we hear about people redeeming themselves. You know, they've created some faux pas in public, and now they're going to make it up. Some athlete did this, and now they're going to put themselves to public service and redeem themselves. There was a drunkard, now they're going to go to AA and get you know, sober and they're going to get a job and all these things are going to redeem themselves. But the word redemption in Scripture is not about something we do for ourselves. It's what God does for us in purchasing us to Himself. That's scary language for most in our culture. Because to be purchased means to be owned. Do you understand that? When you purchase something, you own it. Now, we're not talking about when you finance something because so soon as you fall behind in your payments, you realize you actually don't own the car. You don't own the house. If you financed it, you've merely extended the duration that it takes until you own it when you make the final payment. But when you make the final payment and you've purchased it, it's yours. Redemption is a word that means to buy. To purchase. Why do we make this point? Well, notice the language again in Exodus chapter 12. You have, for instance, in verse 17, this statement, 
ye shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. So God is taking them. You remember the preface to the Ten Commandments that He brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He's liberating us from the cruel bondage of all of that slavish wickedness of Pharaoh, as he says. But now he's bringing us to what? To the land he's promised, he says. And you'll notice it goes on. You can see this, for instance, in verse 42. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And then you'll notice as well in the next chapter, 13, verse 2. Sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast. Why? What are the words that God says? Why is it that everything is to be fully set apart to God? Is this because we're just offering something out of a free will offering and saying, well, it's mine to steward and so on, but I'm giving it to God? No, he says, this is why you're to do it. It is mine. In the day that I delivered you and I provided a substitute for your firstborn, I purchased that firstborn. And so every firstborn is no longer yours, it's mine. Now, brethren, this is significant. This will set up for uh, the sons of Aaron and uh, the Levites and so on, who will be, as it were, set apart as the firstborn from Israel. So they're replacing, as it were, and are set apart to comprehensive and focused service to the Lord and His priestly work. But notice this pattern is fundamental to understanding our salvation. For you can see it in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. Do you know what happens when we read in the Bible and we come across those passages that say things like this? You know, if your right eye plucks it, pluck it out. If your right hand offends, cut it off. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. We read those and we say, well, that's pretty comprehensive. You mean like I don't have any right over what I think, say, or do? Notice what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ and His blood has been applied not unto the doorposts of your house, but as it were, over the whole of your being, here's some truth that you need to reckon with. You're no longer your own. You don't have a right to say, well, I don't want to. You don't have a right to say to God, well, I'd rather. You don't have a right to think, well, I'm going to do it this way. Because you're no longer your own. You are His. And it's not just your thoughts. It's your body. Your body and your spirit belong to God. And this is again asserted in chapter 7, verse 23. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of man. 
you are to serve God. So here's a concept that we need to reassert from the Scriptures. The Passover is talking of the exchange from a slavish, agonizing, cruel enslavement to sin. Remember what Christ said, the soul that sins is enslaved to sin. But it's transferring that to, and we cannot say it otherwise, a good, gracious, and glad slavery to God. Does that offend us for a moment? And yet, how does Paul often call himself? In our text, it's often translated bondservant. But let's translate that in our own time. Slave. Paul, the slave of God in Christ. Now, here's the difference. To be enslaved to God is to be enslaved to life and gladness and joy and liberty. The soul that is made free by the Son, it shall be free indeed. And yet it's not this autonomous, wicked, selfish liberty the world craves. The world loves the thought of liberty, but it's not a biblical liberty. The world's thought of liberty is, I want to do what I want to do, and don't you dare tell me otherwise. Brethren, that's not liberty. That is enslavement to the lusts of your mind and of your flesh. And in the end, that kind of so-called liberty will be shown to have imprisoned you into the depth of hell forever. But what does God do? He provides a substitute to make payment for all of our sins. And He liberates us from the cruel torture and agonizing enslavement to sin and Satan and the world and death and judgment and damnation in order that we would be united and bound with Christ who is life and gladness and heaven and joy and the abundance of all that gives peace. Though it can be said to be a form of enslavement Yet what an image it is, even under the Old Covenant, when the slave, a bondservant who had served his term with his master, had come to say, I want nothing else than to remain with this man. And publicly, he would be taken before the elders of the city, and his ear would have an awl driven through it as the outward mark saying, I want nothing else than to be His. What is Christianity? But our saying, I want nothing else but to be Yours. Whatever else You take from Me, how painful it may be, cannot compare to what I have in You. I want You. I want Christ. And brethren, here is what Christ has done by His blood. He has delivered us from the enslavement of wickedness. And He has graciously bound us unto everlasting life by His grace. Holiness, sanctification, the increase of joy, peace, all of these blessings because of Christ. All of this, brethren, is bound up in the meaning of the Passover. God is giving this lesson which would have been observed year after year after year after year for hundreds of years. And now Christ says, with desire. 
have I desired to eat this Passover. Notice what he says, before I suffer. What's he getting at? Well, we'll look more. But notice secondly, the Passover's symbolism. There's much that took place in the Passover, far more than we have time to consider with exacting detail. But there are several things which stand out most basic and clear. For instance, if you go again to Exodus 12, you'll notice in verse 18, there is the commanding of eating unleavened bread. And remember how Luke opened this Gospel. The days of unleavened bread were at hand. And the Passover was to be observed. This is where it is. Verse 19, Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. Whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. What's the point? They were to give diligent search in their house and any aspect of leaven was to be thrown out. It wasn't just to be sealed up and said, well, it's here still. We're not going to touch it. It was not to be in their house at all. It was to be cut off, cast out. And you can see this notion. A diligent search. Well, we don't need to take much time on this. But just as there was a diligent search under that sacrament of the Old Testament which directed us to commune with Christ, so is it that Paul says, examine yourselves before the sacrament of the New Covenant which testifies of our union with Christ, even the Lord's Supper. But notice this searching. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5? When he brings up the notion of leaven, the tolerating of sinful allegiances, the tolerating of sin, and yet it wasn't just in the social fabric of a church, but notice in 1 Corinthians 5, he speaks of verse 8, let us keep the feast, that the Passover, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This diligent search was understood even by the Jews, as Paul is polling, not from some new insight, but from a whole understanding that was acknowledged through even passages outside of Scripture before the coming of Christ when it was to be a search of our souls, that just as leaven is small, we had to give a minute examination. And Paul's saying, just like that, we're to keep the new Passover, the true Passover, not with malice, but with sincerity and truth. What's getting at is this. What he's getting at is this. This leaven, the minutia of what it was, how small it was, and yet how powerful it was, was to be taken seriously. And that's what sin is to be like as well. And so this feast was an annual remembrance that we are to be watchful against sin. To examine it, to cast it out, to cut it down, and to never stop. But notice the main focus is not just our repenting of sin, but preeminently from the leaven to the lamb. And so in Exodus 12, verse 5 and 6, again, you have this lamb, which is to be without blemish, a male of the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, keep it to the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening." 
Notice these, ling- these words. One lamb without blemish, a male of the first year. And so these notions, of course, are anticipating something far more important. Children, what was it that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus approach? He looked at Jesus and said what? Behold my cousin? No. Did he say, look, behold uh, a wise man? No. Did he say, look, behold the Son of God incarnate? No. All of that would have been true. But he said, behold, notice the language, the Lamb of God. Now here's the striking thing. Each of these Passover lambs could be said to be the lamb of that household. They were to raise it up. They were to keep it. Or if on a trip, they were to purchase it and it was theirs then, just as we talked about. They buy it, it's theirs. Right? What is meant by the Lamb of God? It's meant the Lamb which God gives. What is Jesus Christ? He's the Lamb which God provides. He's the Lamb which God appointed. He's the Lamb which God now issues forth and says, here is the One for which every other Lamb of the Passover was but a shadow. Now get that in your mind and realize this. That there in that upper room, a Lamb was prepared, a sign, a symbol. And yet, the thing signified was also there. The Lamb of God. And it was on the eve of His crucifixion. So just as this Lamb with its bleeding and its cuteness and its innocence was there and was then put to death, so this spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was as it were saying, look at the sign and it points to Me. With desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What's he saying? Before the Lamb of God is slain. Before my blood is poured out. Before I, who am innocent and harmless and undefiled and righteous, before I am slain and my blood shed. See, the Passover's meaning is bound up in its symbolism which is all pointing toward the reality of sin and the reality of a Savior. The leaven, casting it out. And the Lamb, which answers our guilt. Sin, Savior. That's the fundamental message of the Passover. It's not a nice heritage moment. It's not about being being Jewish. It's not about cultural norms and customs. It's about the raw fact that you and I deserve damnation. And the gracious provision that God provides a substitute who is Himself the eternal Son of God incarnate. Who is Himself the spotless Lamb of God. Whom God Himself provides and says you can't provide anything that can answer for what is needed. Because if you provide anything, you still stand in yourself condemned as a sinner in need of judgment, but I bring forth My Son in whom I am well pleased and I present Him as the One who shall suffer. Now think of this for a moment. 
Because Christ understood it all. He not only understood the sign and symbol and the things signified and symbolized, but He knew that He must suffer. And He doesn't say, well, I really like the sign, but I hate the message because I'm going to suffer. He says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover before I suffer. And yet you can see as well in the text that there's anticipation. What's the anticipation? It's that this is going to have its effect. Because as he goes on, he says in verse 18, I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, this language can easily be misunderstood to think that he's saying we're going to eat the Passover again. But this is a very biblical expression of saying it's never going to happen again. I'll give you one example among others that would uh, display this. And that's when Samuel was said no longer to see Saul until the day of his death. He didn't see Saul again. That's the point. It's a biblical poetic expression of saying it's never going to be done again. I'm never going to observe the Passover again. And why would that be? Because the sign was no longer needed. The shedding of blood of anticipation was no longer needed because His blood would be shed. This brings us then to, thirdly, the Passover's end. End is a full word. We think of end, we think of getting to the completion of something. We get to the end of a book. What have we done? We've finished it. We set it aside. But the notion of end is built upon a notion of that to which we're going. What is the direction, the goal? What is the finale? Go to fireworks display. No one's there for the first little dud that goes off. Everyone's longing for the finale, right? When everything's exploding, colors covering the darkness of the sky, sounds, booming sounds, making the reverberations echo as it were through our chest. That's what everyone's there for. They're not there for the first thing. People don't go to the fireworks display and say, look, the first firework, now let's go home. They're there to the end because that's why they're there. They're there to see the grand finale. What everything is anticipating. Well, brethren, this is what every Passover was anticipating. The suffering of Christ. And how perfectly it anticipated it. It's interesting. There was no contribution to the Lamb by those who observed it. The Lamb suffered. The Lamb died. The Lamb's blood put upon the lintel of the doorposts. It's the Lamb that has all the focus on it. But isn't it the case that many men, women, and children think, well, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know, a little bit of my blood too mixed in with that. A little bit of my work also mixed in with that. A little bit of my prayers and sighings and tears so that I can add to the work of Christ. And as soon as we say it that way, we say, what blasphemy. What utter, repugnant blasphemy. Do you know that the Roman Catholic Church formally teaches to this day that there is a treasury of merits of saints? That some saints, as obscene as this is, have so done beyond what God's law requires that their extra works are stored up in heaven and can be added to yours 
so that you can be received by God. And we say, you've got to be kidding me. What are you saying about Jesus Christ with that blasphemous and wretched speech? You're saying that Christ's work is insufficient. But brethren, there are some in this room who would readily set that aside and say, I wouldn't settle for that. But you think in yourself, I've got this. Isn't that the message of our culture today? Whatever else is going on, I've got it. Self-sufficient. I'll do it. I'll figure it out. I'll fix it. I'll work it out. I'll get my life in order. I'll get my prayers right. I'll get my Bible reading. I'll get my church going. I'll get my family in order. I'll get everything fixed up. And subtly what we're doing is we're saying, yes, the blood of Christ, but also my contribution. What's the Passover's message? The Lamb is telling us what you and I deserve. It's a substitute. Could you imagine the confusion that would issue forth if in a classroom tomorrow, the class was expecting a substitute to come in, the teacher on Friday said, you know what, I'm going to be out of town on Monday, and so I've appointed for a substitute to come in and teach. Every you know, child is there ready, and then the substitute's there, but then the teacher's there as well. And the substitute starts teaching, and then the teacher of the classroom says, well, that's true, but let me also add this and that. Very quickly, the classroom would become confused. Like, to which one are we looking? Are we looking to the teacher or to the substitute? Which one is it? Many people live that way before God. Am I looking to the substitute or am I looking to the one for whom the substitute came? Do I look to Christ or do I look to myself? Well, Christ is reminding us with the Passover that the Passover is saying there's only one way to look if you have any hope of salvation, and it's to me. That's the point of the Passover. Christ is the Passover. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, is crucified, notice those words, for us. Were you crucified? Were you put on the cross? Were you bearing the wrath of God due to you for sin? And the answer, of course, is no. Christ was. There is a way of trying to hold to Christ and yourself. But what you'll find is that way ends in only yourself. And if you want to contribute to answering for God's justice against you for your sins, you'll find that flooding your soul and body in hell forever. The Passover says, it, the substitute, must die for me or I have no hope. And here's the great and glorious truth. Christ comes and says, not only is this appointed, but it is what I desire. I desire, I desire greatly with desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Is it not an astounding thing to think about that the one Lamb, the one provision... Christ would take, He would eat it, and He would have them divided among themselves. And there's 
fellowship in the sign. And yet, Christ then would go from this place, pray, be betrayed, be beaten, be humiliated, be shamed, and alone be crucified as the substitute for sin. Brethren, here is the goal, the arrow, the direction, the finale of the Passover. Christ Jesus is crucified. Here is then, as we close, the wisdom of God. God had been preparing His people with His observance again and again. If you had lived for 40 years at this time, for 40 years of your life, every year would have come up. It's Passover time coming. Get ready. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Or in our own house, we're going to observe this. Whatever it was, we're going to have it. Well, we can't travel then because we've got the Passover coming. It would have been ingrained in your mind. And as a child, you would have thought, oh, this is just something we do perhaps. But if you had believing parents, they would have told you this. This is telling us of our need for a substitute. Do you remember what those in Luke earlier recorded thought? This Jesus Christ is the Lord's salvation. Believers in Christ, they got it. They understood. The whole message of the Scripture was issuing forth to this point. It was ushering us to conclude and to see and expect God would provide His substitute. Isn't that what God said to Abraham? Take your son and see that he's put to death. Abraham takes him, puts him on the altar, binds him. Remember his son saying, look, I've got the the wood and you've got the flame. Here's the altar, but where's the sacrifice? What did Abraham say? God will provide it. And it says that as soon as Abraham stretched forth his hand, and many of us get an image like this, But really what would have happened is the blade would have been across his son's throat. Can you imagine that? His blade had extended across his son's throat. He stretched forth his hand and God sent an angel saying, Abraham, stop. And he turns his attention and there's a ram caught with his horns in the thicket. And what happened? God provided a substitute. But after that, what was said, God will provide. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So this even was a sign pointing to the greater provision of Jesus Christ. And what now is before us, the sign of all ages up to that point, is now in contact with the one every sign was pointing to. Christ The Passover is here. What a wise and gracious God we have because the Passover is talking about what God would provide. And what has God provided? Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. You need to come face to face with this. Your only hope is Jesus Christ and His sufferings. It's not being a good father, a good mother. It's not being a good wife, a good husband. It's not being a good church member, a better Bible reader. It's none of that. All of that should follow. But your only hope with God is what He's provided in Jesus Christ. And He has provided Jesus Christ. Here then is a display of the love of God in Christ. Christ knows all of this. He knows fully what's going to come upon Him. And He says, I desire to do this before the reality comes to pass. 
I want you to see one more time with such assurance that this is God's doing. Just as the Lamb and its blood is shed, so my blood shall be shed. If you stand without Christ, here is your only hope. To stand outside of the blood of Christ is to stand exposed to the wrath of God. How can we understand it? But to stand within the blood of Christ is to stand sheltered because of Him who so endured it. If you stand in Christ, here is your call. Never stop praising God. It's astounding that there are professed Christians who think of heaven as boring. I mean, is there anything else we're going to do but praise God? Aren't we going to have time to do this, that, and the other thing? We get it. You know, our world, especially our culture, is so inundated with me, my, I want this, that, the other, and comforts galore that we've deadened in many ways our souls. But when once the soul is convinced of sin and that Christ took it all, the soul is left with nothing but to say, what else would I rather do? but ever behold and bless and praise the Lamb of God. Isn't that what we hear in Revelation? Worthy is the Lamb whose blood has paid for our sins. Here is our hope, our haven, our heaven. It's Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Would you stand with me for prayer?